All right. Thanks for tuning in another episode of Keo Conversations. My name is Mark Champagne and I unpack these stories and mental fitness practices of people living at the top of their game personally and professionally. Today's question is how can we innovate, connect and grow through empathy? And I'm happy to say I have an expert on this subject matter, Michael Ventura, an entrepreneur and the CEO of an award-winning strategy and design studio called Subrosa. He's also the author of Applied Empathy, literally a book that just released this week. Arianna Huffington sums it up quite well with this quote. With Applied Empathy, Michael Ventura shows us how to unlock our ability to design solutions, spark innovation, and solve tough challenges with empathy at its center. So really excited to share this conversation. We really go deep on this subject, and I think there's something for everyone in this one. If you are enjoying these chats, give us a little bit of love wherever you're listening with those lovely stars or written review. This podcast also wouldn't be possible without the support of Kio, which is our daily reflection app. All these awesome guests end up in app to help guide you through your daily reflection. Give it a spin. It's in the Apple App Store. All you have to do is search KYO. And thanks, as always, for listening. Have an incredible day and the best day yet. Who are you? That is, uh, that is a podcast unto itself sometimes. Um, <laughs> I, you know, I think at my core, what, what, what I do best for the different jobs I have, and I'll explain what they are, but, uh, the ability to get out of my own shoes and to see a problem from someone else's perspective to, uh, gain that empathic understanding and then to use it to help present a solution. That's pretty much the, the, the bread and butter of, of my daily round. Uh, I, I, I do that in a couple different ways. So I do that for the longest amount of time, I've been doing it uh, as the founder and CEO of Subrosa, which is the strategy and design practice that I started in 2009 uh, and have been running ever since. And so, you know, companies will come to us and ask us to do types of uh, strategic or design-based work for them, and we'll use empathy as a means in order to uh, solve the problem. So that's one bucket. Another is uh, that I have a alternative medicine practice where I treat anywhere from 10 to 15, maybe a super busy week, 20 people in private practice um, using two different forms. One is a traditional Chinese medicine form, and then the other is a, a form of indigenous medicine from Mexico. Uh, and so, you know, that's a, that's a different way I apply empathy, if you will. Sure. And then the third is a, is a, a design and uh, furniture store that I run in partnership with my wife down in the, the West Village here in New York. And while on the surface, those three sound extremely different uh, in terms of roles and, and, and things I'm doing, at the end of the day, it's really all about connecting with people, understanding their needs, and providing something that can hopefully help them get from A to B. Yeah, 100% agree. I mean, it's, um, it's fascinating. Congratulations for, for setting up those, those different ventures that all kind of coincide with that, that undergrounding, uh, underground of empathy, right? How, like, how did that, cause, cause it didn't all start in, in one shot, right? So no. like, like how did all that come together? Even, even just sub Rosa in, in itself. I mean, I've, you know, over the years of <clears throat> working in healthcare, then now what we're doing now, I've worked with a lot of different, you know, strategy partners and, and agencies. And I have to say, I mean, uh, and I think it's, this is, this is why it's awesome that we're chatting, but I, 
what you're doing is so unique or the the, the approach that you're taking with, with empathy. I, I don't think I've ever seen something like that. So how did that all come about? Thanks. Um, well, I think it was happening under the surface and we never we never really had the words for it or had the had the wherewithal to kind of uh, figure it out up until about 2011. So um, even before Sub Rosa, I had been running a, a digital agency from 2004 to 2009. And then that kind of it morphed into Sub Rosa, if you will. And so then we had been doing the work we do for a couple of years. And then in around 2011, we were really sitting around talking about what's our what's our real kind of superpower? What, what sits underneath the surface and what is the thing that we, we do better than anyone else? And, and truthfully didn't know that answer. Like we couldn't shoot from the hip and, and say, Oh, that's empathy. <laughs> but what we did was we said, uh, let's go back and let's look at some of our best case history and let's, let's treat ourselves like our own best client. Let's be diagnostic. Let's be uh, inquisitive. And let's figure out what it is that we do well. And so we started to go back and look at cases. And soon a, a narrative started to emerge that was saying to us, when you're at your best, you're not presupposing you have the answer. You're not leading the witness to where you think would be the cool spot for them to go. You're truly getting out of their out of your shoes and seeing something from a different perspective. And so... We really latched onto that and and actually um, built a little uh, a little talk, you know, like a forty five minute thing that I started doing and uh, got invited to go do it down at Princeton University. Uh, went down there to do it and came off stage. And one of the deans from the school said, "This is really great. Have you ever thought about making a curriculum?" And that was really <laughs> the uh, the like the oh shit moment. Like yeah, yeah. Really, on, on one side, it was like we've got we're onto something. But on the other side, it was like, ooh, 12 weeks, um, sure. a 12-week course <laughs> at an Ivy League school. Uh, and so we said we'd give it a shot. And in the creation of the curriculum, it really forced our hand to have to learn it better than we ever knew it before yeah. and to be able to embody it and to teach it. And then that has snowballed us into a whole host of things, so, you know, the podcast we do and the book that I've just finished writing and the work we do with our clients. And we've really kind of built this nice ecosystem around empathy that it isn't just like a word in our deck that we send around so that we sound like we care, but like it is truly, truly part of our DNA. Love it. There's actually a quote um, that I read while while doing the research for this. And uh, I think it has a lot to do with when you were first starting out and I just love to get your perspective around it. It was, if you don't get into trouble, you'll never get out of it. Hmm. Yep. You know, what, so what does that mean to you? And uh, from my understanding, it came from a kind of a close friend during the time where, where Sub Rosa was starting. Yeah, it was, um, it was actually uh, my business partner before Sub Rosa. Um, he was a software engineer and, uh, and it, was, it was something his dad always used to tell him. And, you know, for me, it was permission to be audacious and it was permission to take a risk and try something that isn't necessarily going to have a clear cut outcome, but that if done, even if unsuccessful, will be a valuable uh, experience, right? You know, I've, I've come to think about 
you know, as we pursue work or pursue different initiatives here, you either win or you learn, right? There is no real losing if you if you think about it that way. There's always an opportunity to kind of yeah. pick pick something up along the way. And so with with that quote, it's really for me it was about giving me permission to to try something that I was intimidated by, but ultimately uh, proved proved to be the best teacher I could find. Amazing, amazing. So it's been it's been what close to fourteen years now. Uh huh. Yeah, that's about right. So so, you know, as we as we talk now, what makes you smile about your work? The people, for sure. I think first and foremost, I think that the type of work we do, both with our internal team, you know, we've just got such a such a good solid group of humans who really believe and want to help make. Uh, the world uh, a better place. I know that sounds that sounds as as lofty as one can sound, but you know when you work with you know organizations that employ half a million or a million people, you know you're you're touching a lot of lives every day. And if you can make yeah. if you can make an organization with seven hundred fifty thousand employees behave better because you've brought empathy into their process and you've given them a way to think differently about their problems or recruit their talent or nurture their culture. Um, you know, you can really create change at scale. Yeah. So, um, to me, the people are, people are the first, uh, and that goes not just for my internal folks who we spend time with every day, but also for the external folks, the clients that we work with also have to be brave and audacious and ambitious and also, um, vulnerable. You know, they have to be able to sit in a room and tell us what's really going on. Cause if mm -hmm. they sit in a room and tell us what, they think their boss will want to hear, um, then we're not doing anybody um, uh, the service that we could. If, if they sit in the room and they tell us, these are our real problems, this is where the company's really coming up against something difficult, and this is where we could use your help, that's when we can be the, the best partner for them. Well, let's talk a little bit about that because, you know, when I, when I hear the word empathy and, and what surrounds that and knowing a bit about the work that you're doing, like I can't imagine, um, even even today, is it's still like anything around feelings and kind of connecting to your core. Depending on who who you're talking to, you know, you've really got to watch the language, right? And we see that all the time with using a word like like journaling. So, how did you break through to that? And, and especially when when talking to you know some of these huge clients, right? That th this is a completely different model. Mm -hmm. Yeah, you know, I, I often come in and one of the first sentences that I share with a client is that empathy is not about being nice. Um, of course, we, we want people to be nice, but, um, sure. but, but it's a bonus. You know, I, exa <laughs> exactly. I mean, I, all cards up. I know some people who are very empathic, but they're, but they're kind of assholes. Yeah. <laughs> um, it does, you know, and that's, and that's also ultimately why. Um, we came around to this idea of applied empathy because it's really in the application of the understanding that you have that good things occur, right? That you can be able to take that insight and then make it into something more meaningful for, for the folks that you're interacting with. And, you know, I, I recognize that as a, you know, semi-long-haired, bearded guy <laughs> walking in a room talking about empathy there's a certain you know there's a certain uh stigma <laughs> that comes with me when i walk in the room but we've been um doing this in so many different settings and with so many different diverse audiences from you know fortune 10 companies and their you know very uh rigorous 
leadership teams to most most recently one of the academic institutions we've been working with is the United States Military Academy at West Point. Oh, wow. And to sit in a room with 40 cadets who in the next 12 months will be deployed into some far-flung corner of the world and lead groups of soldiers uh, and to sit with them to talk about empathy, I thought we were going to walk into a really tough room. You know, I thought I was sure. going to walk into a room and, and be like the the guy that everyone asks when they leave, like, why the hell was that guy here? <laughs> yeah. um, I just it, it, it didn't seem like it was going to match up. And I'll be honest, I couldn't have been more wrong. I came away from our first day there saying a couple of things. I said, first and foremost, if we ever get a resume that says that the, the candidate went to West Point, I would almost sort of not even read the rest of the resume and just hire the person. Because the, the amount of uh, width and depth in their education and the way they comport themselves and the way they think about problems and the way they ask questions and the way they think ecosystemically um, was really impressive, especially after having taught three semesters at Princeton before that. Sure. Right. Like I thought the Princeton kids were really great. And then and then we met these kids and I realized, oh, wow, there's a there's a whole layer of thinking that I haven't seen elsewhere. And it's because they, you know, they have to be well-rounded when they leave because they're going to have 40 people, 40 lives that they're going to be responsible for. Mm-hmm. As a 21 year old kid, I mean, t- at 21, wow. I wasn't responsible for my own life. Yeah. You know, like fair, I never, never mind for <laughs> never mind 40 others. Right. So. They grow up really quick at West Point, and and as a result, I think there's a level of maturity and, a, and an EQ that is higher there because it's a necessary part of the job. Mm-hmm. So you know, it's a long way of answering your question, but we I, I walked into a room on the second day there, and it was fifty three star, two star, and one star generals, and they're all in their fatigues. And they're all, you know, clearly like, you know, folks who have spent decades working in the military. And I walk in looking like and sounding like how I look and sound. And, um, and I was like, this is going to be the toughest room I've ever had. And, you know, within five or ten minutes, people's heads were nodding. and They were understanding what we were there to talk about. Okay. And we ran an exercise. And, you know, I always measure this exercise. It's an it's a exercise that takes place between two people. So, like a room of 40 breaks up into... 20, group, uh, 20 groups of two, right? And uh, they, I measure it two ways. How quickly does the volume get really loud? Like how quickly do people really start talking, like having real, like unfettered, un, you know, super relaxed, casual, but like engaged conversation. Yeah. And then two, how much gesticulation is going on? How many, how many like high fives and hand movements and pats on the arm and things like that do I see and with that room it happened in the blink of an eye it was it was so amazing how when given a tool when given a, a, a frame of reference to work through like applied empathy how quickly it, it just shifted and they dropped right into it and they knew how to work with it and you know it proved to me that this is really a, a, a completely versatile approach like everyone has the capacity to be more more empathic than they are today. Mm-hmm. And it's a muscle. We train it. Interesting. So what did you, Michael, what did you learn then personally coming out of that experience? Because you like went went into that experience with with uh, with a perception, right? Mm-hmm. And came out of it obviously with uh, with a little bit of a different take. What, what did you yeah. come out of that with? 
Well, I mean, I think one is, you know, don't judge a book by its covers, you know, couldn't have been more true. Right. And I think sure. that was probably, probably true on both sides. Right. Yeah. Um, so that was an interesting lesson to come away with. And then the other one, which was a little more subtle and didn't sort of happen in the moment, but happened retrospectively a little while later was the macro micro that this type of work can affect. Right. So it's, it's very clear to me how on a micro level on an, on an individual level, being more empathic can make me better at my job. It can make me a better partner or collaborator or spouse or whatever it is with people who I need to, I need to work with. Mm-hmm. But, um, when you, when you scale that up to an exponential level, when you think about an organization wide shift, right? The most empathic organizations really can also be the, um, the, the, the tides that rise all boats in their industry that raise all boats in their industry. You know, yeah. if you, if you set a new high water mark for this is the way our industry tackles this type of problem, um, it creates a, a inherent necessity in the competitive set to also rise to that level or to be left behind. So nobody wants to be left behind. So everyone's going to try. It's like an example I brought up last week with a client was, you know, if you remember when Apple opened their first stores, the Apple store was unlike any other electronic store you had ever been in. Sure. And now it's the it's the high water mark that that brands have attempted to and have risen to risen to meet in their own way like Microsoft or Samsung or any of these other brands can't afford to not have an experience that feels something like an Apple store now because that's what people expect exactly and i mean they they obviously you know they i'd love to be in those type of meetings right where the initial concept is is proposed or often I, I chat with my partner about this about google and google maps it's like mm-hmm. who's the guy that said we're going to strap a camera on top of everyone's car and map the world right like the <laughs> dynamic of that meeting and then now you know you're doing that on backpacks of people and like the whole world mm-hmm. is, is mapped i mean you've got to have a certain level of, of of empathy and just openness to to, to dive into something like that so yeah, there's there's a there's a division at Google called Moonshots, and uh, Moonshots is run unsurprisingly by a guy with the coolest name on earth. His name is Astro Teller. Um, <laughs> Unbelievable! And it's like his like real like God given name, <laughs> which is just amazing. Um, and so Moonshots' whole job is to think about big audacious things like that, right? Like yeah. what is the you know could we could we Wi-Fi the entire planet by having a series of hot air balloons circling the stratosphere? Mm-hmm. Um, and riding the, the, the jet currents, you know, in order to do it. And like, and like they're thinking about stuff like this and an interesting behavior that they have at the moonshots group is that, um, they celebrate whenever you kill a project. So let's say you, me and five other people have been working on some crazy idea for three months. And then one of us on the team says, you know, I was thinking about it last night and there's a fatal flaw in this idea. And it's that, Whatever it is, regulatory wise, this sure. thing's going to get shut down or, you know, whatever. We find something that cannot be worked around. And so ultimately we have to kill this project. When that day occurs in the Moonshots Lab, people throw a party for that group. Not because, not because they're, not because they're just overtly celebrating a failure, though that would be cool. What they're actually celebrating is found time because the faster you find those chinks, wow. 
the faster you can go back to working on problems that are solvable. So by finding the, the, the death blow for a project, the five of us will now be reallocated to other projects that have a higher likelihood of succeeding. So what you're actually celebrating is bandwidth discovery. That's fascinating. Right? Wow. I, I've always latched onto that. I find that to be such an interesting way of thinking about people and, and, and how you incentivize growth and, and thinking. Sure. Well, so let, let's hang on, on moonshots a little bit and moonshots and empathy because something I've been thinking about a lot um, with the work that we're doing is trying to facilitate, like it's hard to, it's hard to conceptualize that someone could have moonshot thinking and, and most importantly be able to go through the motions of actually bringing that idea to fruition if inside they're not at a, however you want to describe it, grounded, focused, clear mind mm -hmm. place. Yep. Right. So I don't know. It just, just, what do you think of that? Or have you seen that? Have you, is there examples in, in your 14 years plus of, of running all these different experiments of, um, you know, the, the, the link of that personal, let's say that per personal confidence and education to actually execute on moonshot thinking or ideas. Total, totally agree. I would say that there is, you know, if you if you don't have empathy for yourself, or at the very least, a practice to start to have empathy for yourself, the likelihood of you having empathy for other people is is going to be lower, right? It's sure. just, you know, it's the as above, so below kind of thinking. You've kind of it's got to it's got to be embodied in you. And one of the, one of the frameworks we've developed for that uh, that pursuit of empathy for the self is something we call the whole self. And the whole self is essentially a seven spectrum aspects or seven aspects of the self that one can look at in order to have a, a whole picture of sort of who you are and where you're at. And that ranges from the physical body to your emotional, to the inspired or your community, intellectual, mindful, and aspirational, right? Okay. So there's, there are seven spectrums and there's exercises we've created for each of them. But just to take one, for example, community, the community self. So this is the self that interacts with the world around you um, and that has community that it participates in, right? And so one of the exercises we ask people to do is to think about the people that they most often serve with their capabilities, right? Mm -hmm. So be that your colleagues, your spouse, whatever it is, like think about who those people are and think about what, what skills you offer them that they are most desirous of. And, you know, people think about that and they write a list down and then we say, okay, good. You've got that list. You know what people most often rely on you for the communities that you serve. This is what they look for. Now ask yourself, who are the communities that serve you? And what do you look for from them? And what's astounding is that most of the time there is very little overlap in the communities. Very few people which is kind of unsettling in yeah. some levels, right? <laughs> will say that, oh, I support my colleagues and I support my, my friends and I support my family. And here's what they look for me to, to provide, right? And then when we say, well, who supports you? And then they're like, well, my parents or uh, my, my, my friend group, my peer group, or you know, my therapist, you know, like, and, and everyone's got, kind of got different answers. And it, it, it it shines a light on the interpersonal dynamics that we develop over time with people 
And it helps us to think about ways we might shift our relationships in order to be more in alignment. Yeah. That's amazing. And it's, you know, that's the thing. It just takes, takes a few powerful questions, right? Just to stop the person or, or, or the group and pull them out of autopilot. Right. And let's just think about this a little bit. And all of a sudden you've, you've answered a couple of really powerful questions and there's a whole new perspective there. Right. So it's fascinating. Um, let, let's stick on the questions because, uh, why don't you give the listeners a little bit of a description of your empathy cards? Yeah. These, these are, these are another, you know, just great tool that, um, I can't wait to pull a card myself. So <laughs> explain that a little bit. For sure. Yeah. So, so basically we started looking at the different ways people can elicit the information that allows them to be more empathic, right? So people get information in a lot of different ways. So we started to think about archetypes. What are the archetypes of people? What are the archetypes uh, of uh, ways of showing up in the world that can give you information to allow you to understand someone else better? And so we developed seven that we think are, you know, there are probably more than seven, but we found these seven to be pretty exhaustive. So we stopped there for now. Um, And I'll run through them with a brief description because I think it'll be helpful to kind of just lay the groundwork. Um, So uh, the confidant is one of them. The the behavior of a confidant is that of of a listener. They're, they're, They're listening to truly hear they're not listening, but internally planning what they want to say next. That, like, by by doing that, by having that as like your your default state, you're able to get information in a different type of way, and 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 that information can ultimately allow you to connect with someone better and and build a better relationship or build a better solution or what have you. The inquirer is a deep question asker. They know the question to ask beyond the next question, beyond the next question, to really get to the root of something. The sage is present. They know how to just inhabit the here and now, to just hold space. And in so doing, good things emerge. The alchemist is a experimenter. They're sort of constantly testing and trying. They're, they're tweaking the formula. It's a very scientific method way of experimenting in order, to, in order to understand better. The cultivator sees the long game. They're a committer, right? They know if we do this today and we do that tomorrow, it'll all be in the service of this 10 year horizon that we see on the road. And so if that's the vision, we can pull that into the today and make better, more informed choices. Uh, the convener knows how to hold space. They know how to host, right? They know how to create the environment where 10 strangers walk in a room and they all sit down, but somehow everyone feels comfortable. Yeah. And all of a sudden people can share more naturally. And then lastly, the seeker, is daring they're they're confident and unafraid to take risks or pivot to go out on a limb and to and to and to do something that feels a little perhaps more audacious but in so doing um they gain understanding about their their interior world as well as the world around them so those are seven ways people might show up in the world and so the the way we think about it is that we are all all seven but in unequally distributed ways so um, you know, for me personally, I'm, I'm, my, my approach is, is not that of the alchemist very often. I'm not very comfortable in the, in the experimentation and the, and the tweaking of the formula and the scientific methodness of it all. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, I have other, I have other ones I'm better at like convener is one I definitely go to more naturally. So, 
Um, you know, if I'm going into a room with a bunch of clients who really are scientific method type thinkers, I may go through the questions we've developed in this uh, deck of cards that corresponds with these different archetypes. I'd ask myself a bunch of questions from from a suit that I'm not as comfortable with so that it's sort of like stretching before you work out. Yeah. I'm kind of limbering up that side of my brain so that I can play nice in the sandbox with other folks. Got you. And, and do you notice based on the organization's culture or industry that, you know, prominent themes are developing or is it very individualized? It's a good question. I would say, and this isn't a cop out answer. It truly is a bit of both. Um, yeah. I think that on an individual basis, the there are some themes that we're seeing happening in the world that are, by virtue of their ubiquity, starting to happen inside organizations too. So mindfulness is a great one. You're obviously very familiar with this trend. But yeah. how mindfulness starts to show up in an organization is often championed by a few individuals who are working so true. in a mindful way and then the, and they and then they're like you know what we should start doing a, a meditation group here or like we should try to have like a minute before we start any meeting where we can all just sit together and get aligned energetically before we start talking right and depending pilot. on your yeah, <laughs> let's run the famous <laughs> pilot <laughs> yes exactly yeah and depending on your organization that might be like widely adopted quickly yeah. <laughs> or or that you might you know you guys might be like like the 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 uh the experiment experiment that might go awry and so people don't want to make it so ubiquitous but sure. <laughs> nonetheless like once you get a couple people moving in that direction the the tides really shift pretty quickly yeah no it, it is really encouraging to see i mean having having come out of about 10 years of kind of corporate america let's call it in highly structured organizations and large companies even i was starting to see at the end you know, the, the natural part, the natural one was everyone started having, you know, gyms and stuff and the physical fitness part was, yep. was locked in. Right. Um, but then you started seeing, okay, let's, let's look into some of these mindfulness practices and let's start with a bit of education. And then I, don't, I know I don't have to tell you this, but then you start getting up and you see it a lot more in, in, I would say in the West and California and whatnot, but you know, the companies that actually have meditation or quiet rooms right oh yeah like that's a sure. huge leap forward so well you know what's interesting though is like it it's amazing to me how quickly that has spread i was in dubai a couple of months ago visiting a client of ours in a very traditional very um manufacturing based business headquartered in dubai and actually in in a in a state outside of dubai but Sure. You know, UAE. Yeah. And uh, went to visit their factory and walked the factory floor with them and met some of the folks who work there. And they said, yeah, we've got, uh, we've got a, a, a meditation program and we've got a meditation room. And I was like, wow. <laughs> like like yeah. that, it, 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 it was amazing to me how quickly this has become table stakes in that moment. Yeah. It's um, so you probably don't know this, but my my other half in this work marriage, uh, Sine, and the co-founder of Keo, um, a lot of his family is actually in Dubai uh, right now, and he grew up in Dubai, ah. Dubai in India. And um, the reason I bring this up is because he just came back from there for some for some meetings, and he showed me a screenshot of someone's phone, 
And they're going as far, the Dubai government is going as far to actually change what you see for the cell phone carrier. So, you know, for us, whatever, if it's Sprint or or whatever, it actually says Happy Dubai on the top. (laughs) (laughs) So it's, they're really pushing, um, pushing that whole concept forward uh, as as hard as they can. So I'm really curious to see where that goes, because I think as anyone can relate, um, you know, when Dubai puts their their mind to like, we see it in the architecture, obviously, and, you know, all the, all the, all the buildings and everything they've, they've done over there, they, they, they go right to the wall, right. (laughs) With, with what they do. So I'm really curious putting their minds uh, in, in, in mindfulness where that could go. So I guess stay tuned. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. Um, Let's dive into some of your, your personal practices because, you know, we've been talking obviously a lot about empathy and, and some of the client work that you're doing. Um, but I don't want to skirt over the fact that, you know, you're a business owner and a multiple business owner over the many years now, you know, like what are some of the things that, and some of the practices that you've picked up over the years that are, are really non-negotiables at this point in your life. And when I say that, like, that means when you travel, you're doing these things. Yep, for sure. Um, there are definitely a couple, uh, I would say my 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 way I start my day every day has been the same for over four years. I mean, it, it's been that way for even longer. But I guess it, for the for the past four years, I've not missed a single day. So that that speaks more to the sort of the consistency that developed over time. I think when okay. I started when I started having a morning practice, it was viewed as um, beneficial yet intermittent. Right. Sure. And then and then it started to become reliable, but not daily. And then now it is essential and mm-hmm. life support. You know, For sure. <laughs> you know? I, so, I hear you on that. <laughs> um, and so um, so so that practice is it's, it's primarily a Taoist practice. So um, I do Tai Chi and Qigong every morning and then I have uh, some meditation that I go through. Okay. Uh, and some, and I'll use a word that as a kid who was raised in Northern New Jersey as a, as a Catholic, but is, is certainly not, um, consider, I don't consider myself a Catholic now. I'll use a word that has baggage for me and may for other people as well is, is, um, there's a period in the morning for prayer. Sure. Um, you know, but it isn't, you know, saying, uh, three Hail Marys and three Our Fathers anymore. Uh, you know, it's, yeah, a, it's yeah, a different sure. form, but, but, um, that, that is something that is absolutely a non-negotiable for me on a daily basis. And then, uh, two other things I would say fit into that as well. There's, um, there's at some point in the day, every day is some kind of, uh, body scan, check-in awareness to see like, how's my energy level? what am I putting in my body? What did I eat today? You know, am I, am I moving at the right pace? Am I moving too slowly or too quickly? But just kind of like a check-in, a tune-in kind of moment to just make sure things feel good. And that's, um, that's a daily thing. And it happens at different times every day, but it is, it is something that is part of my daily awareness for sure. Okay. And, I have and to then, stop you on that one. Cause I think that one's okay. a real critical one and something, at least what I'm seeing is the more and more that you do any of these practices, you know, almost the more intuitive or easier they become and the more that you see, let's say, throughout the day. But these 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 check-ins, like are there are there any things that you're like how are you doing that? Let's get a little bit practical on that because I think sure. those are super, super valuable. But 
as you know, and as most people probably kind of push back, I'm busy, I'm in and out of meetings. Like, how do I even step out of that frame of mind and to, to, to pose a question like what you just mentioned? Yeah, for sure. Um, so there's, I would say, I'm trying to think of a, a, a succinct way of getting into it. I would say that it, it really all kind of began uh, in a school of thought that I spent a lot of time studying in my mid-20s and, and kind of became embodied uh, in, in my late 20s, early 30s, um, is the work of a philosopher and, and teacher known as uh, G.I. Gurdjieff, and, and his work was known as The Fourth Way. I don't know if that's something you've come across at all. No. Okay. So he was a contemporary of like Jung and Freud and kind of came up in that, in that era of thinkers, but was also very much connected to the surrealists and the Dadaists. So it was kind of a little bit more of a mystic and a little bit more of a kind of an interesting Eastern European esoteric, if you will. Sure. And his philosophy, which was known as the fourth way, was that historically people had pursued enlightenment through one of three paths, the way of the fakir, the way of the monk and the way of the yogi. So the fakir pursuing mastery um, or, or uh, awareness um, through the physical body, right? So walk across hot coals or do something that kind of is going to put you into a physically challenging state in order to transcend. Sure. Um, the monk was uh, a path, again, all towards the same common goal, um, but this one is a, a, a bit more faith-based or... Um, what, what I would call like dogmatic, um, you know, so you, you follow a, a doctrine, you follow a practice, um, and that, and that repetition and that commitment to it puts you on a path of simplicity and clarity. And then the third would be the yogi, um, which is uh, a mindful path, right? So, um, using sort of mental habits and, and, and things like that controlling that mental state and that connection to higher consciousness. So his philosophy was there's a fourth way. <laughs> um, and, and it's, it's, it's kind of, you know, it's, it's, it's an interesting way of framing it. His, his, the fourth way is that, can you practice a constant state of self-observation across those other three states at all times? So are you, are you, are you always aware of your physical body? Are you always aware of where you're holding stress or pain and your breath and all of these things? Are you always aware of, of your intellectual and sort of, you know, the, your dogmatic approach or philosophy and are you deviating from it or are you living within it? And are you aware of your mindful state? Uh, and, and if you can cultivate a constant, which no one can, right? I mean, yeah. that that would ultimately is an enlightenment, right? I guess if you get to that point, but um, or a, a more regular awareness for those three states at all given times, then you're you're working the you're you're doing the good work. Fair, that's that's incredible. Yeah. So continue. <laughs> yeah. How do you so, do yeah. that? <laughs> <laughs> um, well, for you know, for me, it's really um, you know, usually what will happen is I will become aware of one thing that feels a little out of alignment. So, like, I might be carrying my weight in the wrong way, or I might realize I haven't. I've been unconsciously breathing very shallowly for probably a couple hours, and then I'll recognize that, and then drop into breathing a little more diaphragmatically and letting my rib cage expand, and then all of a sudden now I've got a new awareness for my breath and that'll carry on for a while until I drift from it again and then I'll catch it again. So it's, 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 
it's kind of like tweaking the recipe. It's not rewriting a recipe, but it's, you know, sure. this needs a little more salt. This needs a little less that and kind of just keep tweaking it on a minute to minute basis until you kind of feel like you're, you're in the center of the center of the river. Yeah. But I feel like the, so thanks for sharing that. I mean, uh, I'm definitely going to pick up that, uh, that book, but I think it, it, and then correct me if I'm wrong. I would say the core of that in, in, in order, because essentially you're, you're noticing your triggers, right? Which yes. is not, is not the easiest thing to do and to, to help for, for people just getting started is to have, you know, better control of your mind or, mm-hmm. uh, an awareness and whatnot, which I feel like the core of that has been developed in your every morning training, right? That's, that's, that's facilitating. Yeah, they definitely, they definitely go hand in hand. Like my, yeah. my, the, uh, the Taoist practice in general really does span these three things, right? It's, it's, it spans a mindful, uh, intellectual, dogmatic, and a physical uh, practice for mm-hmm. me. So tuning back into that is, uh, is a way of checking that. Sure. It's just fascinating to me because, I, I mean, a lot, of the, a lot of these practices for me personally are, are fairly new and, and I'm, I'm so grateful to have, to have these conversations because it's, it's making me better as well. But for, for one of my triggers, just to, <clears throat> to, to elaborate on what, what you're saying was, like, I feel the stress in, in, my, in my traps or shoulders. Mm-hmm. And, you know, five years ago, I would have never noticed that. And then all of a sudden I would, you know, have this massive back problem and like, oh, I definitely have to go for a massage or do this or I tweak something. But now, and, and that's why I bring it up, is it, I think it's really the, the daily practice of, of being aware. And again, just like we train our physical body, training your mind, like I, I pick it up right away. I'm like, oh, hold on a second. And it yep. has nothing to do with physical body like there's something mentally stressing me here let's just maybe go for a walk or get some fresh air or like you said your breathing's out of out of bounds or something but it's like i'm trying to think well what's changed right i mean (laughs) and it's 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 all these different practices so i just bring it up because i feel like there's a lot of people that um really want to get into this um into these different practices and they just don't know how to start right and yeah it's um, and maybe we should dive into that because you've got a great routine. Like any suggestion on on just putting their toe in the water, let's say, and and getting going so they can feel something, right? Yeah. And, and then get uh, keep going. Absolutely. I you know I this is perhaps counter to what other people may or may not recommend, but I often when someone wants to start to develop a practice and, um, and, you know, not, like I said, I, you know, I, I treat 15 people a week and a lot of the folks who come in my door for a a session and get on the table when we talk before that, um, you know, I I tell them what I do and what I do for me might not be what's right for you. And if someone's really early on in this process, I encourage them to go to the buffet line before they sit down to eat. Um, and you know, like try a lot of, things but commit to something yeah um it's okay it's okay to like go take a kundalini yoga class if that doesn't speak to you and you don't feel like that's your medicine don't keep going back to kundalini you might want to try something else don't force it if it doesn't feel right now at a certain point you do need to commit because the 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 the, the trappings of the buffet line is that you can get used to sampling a lot and never going deep on anything and and you will you will do yourself a major disservice if you do that. 
So I think at a certain point, and you'll know for yourself what that point is, but at a certain point, you do need to say, okay, I've tried five different things. This is the thing I liked the most of the five. Because if you're looking for like the the, the unicorn that feels 1,000% great, um, you may not find it because frankly, this work is hard. Yeah. And, uh, and it's, you know, it's not going to be, you know, all bliss and, uh, uh, and, and joy on day one. Some of it is going to be really brutal, um, in order to, to push through and to get to a, another layer of yourself. So, you know, my, my recommendation to folks is often try a couple things. Don't commit to anything straight out of the gate, but once you've done three, four, five, pick one and then commit to that for a significant period of time and see what it does for you. Well said. Thank you for sharing that. That's a, that's great, great advice. Um, I'm, I'm going to start wrapping up because I, I want to be respectful of your time. Um, so just a few more questions, uh, Michael. One being, if you were to project out, you know, let, let, let's say even a year, two years from now, how would, how would your life feel? And would it be any different? Or how do you want it to feel? I should say, it's a good question. It's you know, it's a good question because it's one that I think about a lot, but it's also one that I don't necessarily verbalize a lot. Um, you know, for for me, the most important thing I've been pursuant of in recent months, particularly, has been um, a willful courage to enjoy happiness. Mm, love it. Um, uh, and it's not to say I'm, I'm an unhappy person. I'm far from it. I'm actually quite happy. But um, but happiness also takes work sometimes. For sure. Um, and uh, in order to feel in command of your happiness, sometimes you have to make decisions that will be uncomfortable, but ultimately in the service of your happiness. So, um, so, uh, you know, it's funny to say happiness takes work, but, uh, but I think, um, I think sometimes it does. Well, it does. And it's, I, I, it's funny. I I think we've got a few things in common. I mean, that's something I'm, I'm working on as well. And and honestly, and and trying to find happy, happy, true happiness in like what's in front of me right now and and getting out of that, you know, well, what's to come And, and, and not to say, you know, I think everyone should be motivated and have goals and all of that, but you know, when you really step back, um, and, and everyone's circumstance is different, but I would different, but I would say on average, and if anyone I'm talking to on this show or anyone in North America, I mean, we've got it pretty good, right? Yeah. And it's you know, how can you how can you truly truly be happy in the current moment and what you have and with your health and your friends and your family and and, and all of that, right? And it's so when you say you know that happiness takes work, I I totally agree with you. I mean, that's not. That that's easier said than done. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Exactly. Especially when society is kind of pushing you completely the other way all the time, nonstop. <laughs> <laughs> yes, yeah. I, I think that's a fair point too. I mean, you know, I I live my life in a in a services business, in three services businesses, right? Yeah. So, like my my daily work is very much about providing happiness to others in some way, shape, or form, whether they want to define it as happy or you know or satisfaction or whatever it is, but like some some effort to provide that and i think the you know making myself my own best client is a good way of thinking about that oh well said i love that great great line what are your 
three reflective questions. We had talked about this earlier, but just could be, I mean, you've, you've definitely provided a few questions for this, this conversation, but what I'm trying to get at is, is three questions that circulate in your life, either on a frequent basis or during big life changing events that have, that have helped you that you can leave with us. Mm -hmm. The first one is going to sound vague, but it's actually extreme. It is a question that my fourth way teacher actually asked me the first day I met him. Um, and it is, what do I want? And that's, that's the whole question. And, and, and one can answer that question so many different ways, but usually we answer that question through some personality. So hmm. I want a promotion. I want to be in a happy relationship. I want this, I want that. And what he encouraged me to do is to not pay attention so much to the want, but to who's asking for it. And under, yes. And to understand like, well, that's like the professional me inside me that like wants success and growth and, you know, more clients and a promotion or whatever it is. Right. Um, but that's just, that's, that's a facet. That's not, that's not the essential me. Right. Mm -hmm. um, and so a lot of the work I've spent with Gil doing that type of self inquiry was about separating the personalities from the essential and really trying to learn and, and listen to the, the, the essential me. Perfect. So that's, that's the first one. Uh, the, the, the second two, um, are kind of subsets of that. Cause I really do feel like that is, that is the question. Because if we know what our essential self wants, a lot of other things click into place pretty, pretty, pretty nicely. Um, a second thing I do is, is I often, I, you know, I've been with my wife for 12 years. And while we all have an obligation and a, and a responsibility to ourselves, um, we also have an obligation to the partners we choose, right? And mm -hmm. so another question I often ask myself is, you know, what is the, what is the right answer for this whatever this thing is that i'm thinking about for us right for, for the partnership that i'm in with with my wife because um sometimes you can be making decisions that are right for your partner but aren't always right for you or vice versa right for you not right for your partner and i think when you when you make a commitment to be with someone um you owe it to them to be part of your consideration set for sure you know and to, and to actually like <laughs> tune in and Make sure that you're doing things that are that are that are right for both. Um, I think we should line up that question for whenever uh, a person's getting married. I mean, probably cut the divorce rate in, in half. <laughs> That's a great question. <laughs> Absolutely. Um, and then the third is, and this is this is the 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 practical me um, that that I think has helped me create achievable small steps in what often seem like daunting ambitions um, is what is the right next action? And so it's a great question. I'm, I'm not worried. I think it can become very overwhelming and you can, you can, you can be very panic stricken quickly if you're thinking about all the actions or all the steps or all the things you have to do to get from A to Z. Um, and so what is the right next action is very immediate. It's very manageable. If you understand what that is and you do that, then you just ask it again. 
and you do the next one and then you do the next one and it's not the weight of the world is is lessened on your shoulders as a result sure how often do you think you use that question or i guess i should pose it in this way what percentage split do you think you use that question for for business or work versus personal uh i would say it's pretty even to be honest um i yeah the by virtue of being an entrepreneur, that line is pretty blurred to begin with. <laughs> Fair. <laughs> so, yeah. you know, it's, it, it, they're all, it's all matching luggage. Yeah. It's life as we call it. Yes, exactly. <laughs> Love it. Well, thank you. Those are really deep, great questions. Um, and, um, unique in, in, in the conversations we've had. So thank you for sharing that. And we'll Thanks. have that. We'll definitely Appreciate have those in the app. Um, last question, as, as we sit here and speak today, what are you, what are you most grateful for? To experience everything I've experienced up until this moment, really. I think that it is, uh, even the hardest things I've gone through have been massively helpful and informative and they've been teachers in their own way. And, you know, uh, every, every day we have is a gift. So I, I don't take any of it for granted. And so I'm, I'm truly grateful for this ride that we are on as humans and, uh, and, and having the opportunity to learn with every breath we take. Well said, well said. And it is a truly remarkable ride. So thank you. Thank you for sharing that. Where can people follow along on your journey and learn a little bit more about the importance of empathy in our lives? Yeah. So um, thanks for asking. Uh, and thanks for all the good questions. It was really a, a wonderful chat. Um, the uh, best place to sort of stay in touch with the goings on of, of applied empathy and Sub Rosa is all um, through Sub Rosa's website, wearesubrosa.com. Um, so that's, that's point one. Uh, and then um, the book Applied Empathy will be out on May 22nd. So it's available for pre-order on Amazon and Barnes and Noble and all those Oh, other great. likely sources so that that's out there and uh and you know i'll be um if you sign up for our newsletter on our website you'll get more information about speaking tour and all of that kind of stuff as things come on with the book um, which will be super exciting you know we'll be uh basically you know hitting hitting up a bunch of different cities and running workshops and um and giving talks or running panels and things like that so um if you if you sign up there you'll you'll stay up to up to date and then if you want just like a weird window into um the things that i find interesting then uh my instagram is typically a safer place for that though it's not a self-promotional that's uh, a sure. michael ventura uh so we'll, we'll, i'll put all these in the show notes <laughs> cool <laughs> and the book is it's may 2nd right you said may 22nd 22nd okay perfect we'll have all that in there that's great i'm excited to get a, a hands on that um thank you thank you so much for your time and for for sharing your wisdom on on this topic it's i mean i'm definitely leaving the conversation with a you know a little bit of homework and a little bit of reading and inspired to to continue down this path so i i I only hope that there's others obviously listening to this that that you've nourished and enriched their their journey and from a different perspective and and i think that's that's the main thing that we're trying to create with with these conversations is you don't, we don't all have to be in the middle of the woods, living disconnected off the grid to apply these practices, right? It, they can be applied on the everyday. Uh, and s- simple things like you said, just checking in with your breathing while, while at work. I mean, these are, these are practical insights that can make such a huge difference in your life. So, 
So yeah, thank that's you. That's right. Yeah, we don't we, we don't need more monks in monasteries. We need monks in cities and in corporations. I agree. That is the perfect way to, to wrap this one up. So <laughs> thank you. Thank you very much. It was great chatting with you and uh, I'm looking forward to more soon. <laughs>